0: Well, good morning again. Thank you, Susan. Appreciate that. Good morning. Thank you. There you go. That's what I'm talking about. There we go. Thank you, Henderson family. Somebody going to bring some life. Y'all are a little sleepy this morning. You need to wake up. I ain't kidding, please. Um, so this morning, we're, we're starting a little three-part series in the book of Proverbs, okay? Um, and... It's interesting, uh, th- this morning, as I, I mentioned at the beginning of the service, is about combating sexual sin, and as I was looking at it, I, I felt kind of embarrassed, I was like, oh, maybe we don't need to do this, it's kind of, and I, I can't tell you how much spiritual opposition I and others around me, and just even within our church, I've felt to, I think, this, this very topic um, recently. And I think that is because of how important it is, and oftentimes how, uh, how much unclear teaching there is in general. So um, my intent this morning is to be clear and candid, um, but also I realize there's, there's young, young people in here and a lot of co- important conversations that need to happen outside of our time together about this topic, but... Um, As I pray right now, pray with me that God would would use this um, in the life of this congregation uh, for whatever way he would, and that he would uh, put a hedge of protection around us in our time that we might hear from God's word. So would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we pray that the sleepiness of our singing this morning would not be indicative of sleepiness in our souls. God, would you kill dead religion in us? God, put it to death. It's so useless. God, would you kill it, please? Would you warm our hearts to behold the God of glory? Father, we, we need you to be near to us. We pray that you would put a hedge of protection around us in this time, that you would keep back the evil one, as he would seek to pick up seeds that fall on the ground and not allow fruit to spring up to eternal life. Father, we pray that this morning you would encounter each of us wherever we are in our walks with you and wherever we are in our striving and struggling against sexual sin, that, God, you might meet us there by the power of your word and that you would do work this morning through your word, in our souls for your glory and for our good. Father, we pray that you would set captives free this morning. Would you warn and rebuke those who do not fear? Would you heal those who have been wounded? God, do what only you can do through the power of your word, by your spirit, for the glory of Jesus, that we might behold your face, Father. Would you help us this morning? We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I'm not a big myth- mythology fan, but I do remember uh, in Homer's Odyssey, uh, the character Ulysses, he was traveling to Ithaca, and in one particular part during the story, he's warned about some of the dangerous obstacles that, that lay ahead of, of him on, on the way. And one of the particular things that he was warned about was an island, and on this island there were some, some female creatures called sirens. And these sirens were, were said to, to be sitting there, um, singing beautifully in a field of, of flowers, and as they, as they sang out, what they would do is that they would, they would lure men to come near and to enjoy their song. But the trick was that their song was a, a deceptive trap that was too powerful to escape. So everybody who would go near and be enchanted by this song would die there. As evidenced by the pile of bones that laid before these singing sirens. So, as Ulysses was getting close to this this island, what he did was he put wax in his men's ears so they couldn't hear the song of the siren, and they had him, uh, they had the men tie him to the mast so that he couldn't get, get away. And as they began to pass by, Ulysses heard the song of the sirens crying out. And despite the fact that he could look over there and see the pile of dead men who had gone there and been drawn there to, to die because they couldn't get away from this, everything in him wanted to break off the cords of restraint and to draw near and to drink of their song. Now in the story, Ulysses gets by and everything's okay for him in that portion of the story. And though that that story is a mythical tale, the character of the singing sirens serves as a very, I think, real picture of the seductive song of sexual temptation that echoes all around us. It's everywhere. You can't turn on the TV without advertisements, and I I mean I'm not going to draw pictures for you, but that the advertisements, it's everywhere. Every web page that you go to, it seems like, there's either something there or some ad that, that cries out for you to look. Songs that we hear, shows that we watch, co-workers around us, neighbors, friends, memories. It's everywhere. It's in the very air that we breathe. And all of us, to differing degrees, are susceptible to this seductive, song. But God, God offers a better song. One that warns about the dangers of sin while at the same time promising a better, lasting, more fulfilling pleasure. And this morning, that's what we're going to be thinking about as we go to the book of Proverbs chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, come with me. Proverbs chapter 5. If you didn't bring a Bible, um, one of the things we do at this church is we just Open up the Bible and go line by line through. So um, there's Bibles in front of you in the pew there. Chapter 5 of Proverbs is found on page 530. 530, 530. Go ahead and open up there, and it'll help you to follow along. As you're getting there, just tell you a little bit about the book of Proverbs. It's a, it's a unique bill, a book that's filled with, with Holy Spirit inspired wisdom, mostly written by uh, a guy named King Solomon. And the aim of the book is to help foolish people become wise. So, I know I and all of us, I think, are in in good posture to to be instructed then. Now, the way the book is laid out in your first nine chapters, it's uniquely Solomon speaking to his sons. It's basically a discipleship manual that he leaves with his boys, trying to give them wisdom about life. Twenty-one times the word sons shows up in those first nine chapters. But he's not just giving them a collection of of common sense, but rather this is godly wisdom about how to live in God's world. That opening psalm that we read, Psalm 24, this world is God's. And he set it up, everything in it, in a certain way. And all of us are tempted to rebel against that design and to do things the way we want to do them. And in particular, he knows for his son, there's an area of wisdom that we we need, and that is about sexual intimacy. This wonderful, powerful gift that God gives to a husband and a wife that is designed not only for enjoyment, but, but it produces a physical, emotional, and spiritual intimacy, a kind of knitting of souls together. And this is going to be a unique temptation Solomon knows for, for his son's. And for all of us, all of us are going to be tempted to sin against God by misusing sexual pleasure. He's going to speak throughout chapter chapter 2, 5, 6, and 7. He keeps talking about the forbidden or the strange woman. 65 verses are given to this subject. I want you to look at Proverbs chapter 5 with me. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Then we're going to spend some time considering the message that we hear. Proverbs 5. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding. That you may keep discretion, and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. Verse 7, And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. Lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and your body are consumed and you say, oh, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I'm at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation." Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly he is led astray. The big idea that we're going to be thinking about this morning that comes right out of our text is this. Sexual perversion brings destruction, but God's provision brings delight. Sexual perversion brings destruction, but God's provision brings delight. Those two parts are going to kind of make up our two points as we as we walk through this and re- reflect on the things that we've seen here. But as, and, and, and this particular sexual sin that he's talking about this morning is adultery. But as we're going to see, there's application for all types of sin here. One other caveat before we jump into the first point is I, I want to say this. That desires for sexual pleasure, are not that's not an evil thing. God made sex as as a good gift for a husband and a wife to share together. But we've got to know this. All of us are broken sexually. We're all broken in this area. All of our desires are twisted by sin. And it shows up differently in in, in every person. Some are tempted more strongly than others in this area. Some are tempted with same-sex attraction. Some who are married are tempted to avoid sex. Some who are married are tempted to look outside of the marriage for fulfillment. Sin's offerings are endless. It affects us all differently. But it affects us all. So this morning, nobody's exempt. Men, women, young, old, single, engaged, married, divorced, widowed, Let us hear this morning for ourselves and our own souls, but also for one another, that we can help each other to fight against the song of the siren. All right, with that said, sexual perversion brings destruction, but God's provision brings delight. Our first point is this sexual perversion brings destruction. Sexual perversion brings destruction. So Solomon loves his sons, and our Heavenly Father loves us, so he gives us this portrait here in chapter 5 and chapter 7, as we'll see in a moment. And he he shows us some things that we need to know about this particular kind of sin. And the first thing that I think we need to notice as we're reading through here is the delusion of sexual sin. The delusion of it. Look again at verses 5 and 6. Her feet go down to death, her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. She doesn't ponder the path of life. Her ways wander. she does not know it. What characterizes this, this person's worldview is that God, God is disregarded here. She doesn't ponder the, the, the path of life. She ignores reality. She ignores the fact of verse 21, that a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. One of the things the Bible tells us is that there is a God, and he sees everything. Everything. And it is madness, absolute madness, to live in God's world, but ignore him. It's the craziest thing that anyone can ever do. To ignore his design. That there's a maker who made life and to say, I don't want you to tell me how to do it. I want to do things the way I want to do it. It's like using a, a, a chainsaw to brush your teeth. It's fool. It's madness. But that's what she is doing and what she's tempting him to do. Her temptations are aimed at luring him to ignore the consequences, to forget all of the warnings that they've ever heard, to just do what what feels good and give no thought to the fact that they are both going to have to give an account to God for everything they think, do, say, and chase after. It is delusional to live as if there were no God. And sexual temptation will call you Christian, to live as a practical atheist. To have the right creeds and confessions, to show up at a church that's conservative in its teaching, and we know they're going to give us good Bible teaching, but then to walk out and act like we didn't hear a thing. Practical atheism glorifies Satan. And that's what the aim here is to make decisions as if they don't matter to disregard God's design, to think that God actually doesn't see in the dark, to think that deleting emails and text messages and whatever else, that that is going to get us off on the day of judgment. It's madness. It's delusional is what he's saying here. Listen to Hebrews 4.13. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That means there's no hiding from God. He sees everything, and not just what we do, but even what we think, even what we desire. Brian read earlier from Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus said, I say to you that if anyone looks at a woman or a man with lustful intent, he has already committed adultery in his heart. Jesus says, I see the heart. I see the heart. I know what's going on in your heart. And to stray, even in desire, is enough to condemn us before a holy God. Because God, the God of the Bible is a good God, and he's not just interested in actions. He is interested in actions, but he's also interested in affections, because it's from affections that actions spring. Lust is a heart issue, and we all have it on some level, but you see, sin is not satisfied with leaving it here in the affection level, he wants to draw it out into action, and that's where the I want us to notice here the deception of sexual sin. So sexual perversion brings destruction, it's delusional, it's also deceptive. Look at verses three and four again. the whips the whips sorry the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey her. Speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. The, The speech of this temptress is deceptive. Lips drip honey. Speech smooth like oil. When, when the sexual temptation comes, in whatever way it comes, it just sounds so convincing. It seems to know just what to say and just how to say it. And we've all heard these lies, just like that powerful song of the sirens in the Odyssey, enchanting the heart away from reality, away from God into the darkness. That's what sin wants your heart to do. It, it wants to capture your desires and your affections in chapter 6 he's going to give the same warning to his son 624 he says do not desire her beauty in your heart and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes it's a trap son is what he's saying and if he had daughters it's a, it's a trap daughters it's like a, a spider weaving a web. It wants to cloud the thinking. That's what, that's what sin does. It doesn't, it doesn't want you to have sobriety to see things clearly. It wants things cloudy. Look over at chapter 7 for a moment. This whole 7. I'm just going to read through. I want you to Watch this more descriptive picture of how, how the temptress works here in chapter 7. This is Solomon speaking. He says, verse 6, at the window of my house, I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple. I have perceived among the youth, a man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night, in the darkness. Notice the darkness. That's how sin. It's what sin likes. It likes darkness. It doesn't want you to see things clearly. Verse 10, and behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart, means clever and full of tricks, secretive, underhanded. Verse 11, she is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the streets, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him with bold face. She says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you just to make him feel special and affirmed. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens with, from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. The situation's under control. We'll never get caught. We're safe to sin. That's the hypnotizing lie. Verse 21, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. And with her smooth talk, she compels him. Do you notice what she does? This is what this is what temptation does. It goes after the deep. Deep desires for affirmation. She tells him special, desired. You're the aim of my affection. You don't have to be lonely anymore. You need somebody who's going to respect you, who's going to listen to you, who's going to care. She's using flattery. That's what sin does. It, it flatters you. To cloud your senses. To get him to ignore the danger. It makes sin somehow seem reasonable and worth the risk. You're at that moment and you're like, this seems like it's not that big a deal. See, what temptation does is it paints the door of death as a gateway to joy. I used this illustration a number of years ago, but... I'm going to use it many more times because I think it's really helpful. A number of years ago, I was watching the Discovery Channel or Animal Planet or some kind of thing like that. And it's one of those scenes where they're watching these, these bugs, right? And there's this plant that's this beautiful plant with these flowers that are out like this. And it's kind of a corkscrew kind of deal. And it's just gorgeous, right? And somehow they get that little camera up right up there on the edge of the plant. And they're zoomed in, and they're like, here comes the bug. And the bug flies in. and like, the, bug, the bug is attracted by the smell of perfume that's coming off from the flower. And the, the bug smells it, and he draws near, and he lands on the, on the, the leaf, and he crawls down. And you can tell he's kind of looking around. And, and then he starts going down further into the plant. And there's this sappy honey type stuff in there, and, and the bug is just kind of, he's just loving it, and he's crawling in, and as he crawls in, I don't know how they get the camera in there, but they've got these little, it looks like there's hairs inside the, the plant, and the, the bug is just kind of pushing through to try to get down further to whatever this thing is that's drawing him in, and then they explain to you that this, this is a flesh-eating plant, and the smell that's coming out of there that's attracting this bug are the digestive juices that are about to consume this little bug. That's exactly what sin and temptation is. It looks so pretty. And it calls and it just seems so good. But as you get further in, what those little hairs were doing, it was like he couldn't back out because he's stuck. He's hemmed in, he's there, he's locked into his death. It's exactly what's happening here. And as you're watching this thing, you're like, you want to yell at the bug. Don't do it, man. Get out. Back up. And that's exactly what Solomon's saying to his sons. Don't do it. Don't, don't do it. Verse 8, keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. Don't go near Don't see how close you can get to sin without falling in. Don't walk on the edge of destruction for the thrill and think that you can back up at any time. There's nothing there but death. Don't flirt with it. Don't try it. Don't play roulette with sexual sin. Because here's, here's one of the secrets. You see, sin wants us to nibble on the bait. This is an image that David Verha shared with me that, that the Puritans use all the time about temptation, that it's, it's like a bait that hides the hook, right? And what temptation wants you to do is it wants you to nibble on the bait because when you get a little taste of it, what it does is that it clouds your ability to reason and it weakens our resolve. And the longer we stay there and consider it, the weaker and weaker that we get and the stronger and the stronger sin gets. Lust... Is a beast that gets stronger when you feed it. As is anxiety and gluttony and every other sin that you want to list. That's how sin works. As you feed it, it gets stronger. So unmarried Christian sister, who wants to be married so bad? And that guy at work who's not a Christian and he, hes so charming, and he pays attention to you, and he talks to you, and he just—he pokes a little fun as to why are you going to wait, you know, until you get married. But I respect that, and I, all those guys must be crazy for not asking you out. Like, why don't, why don't me and you go get a drink sometime, sister? Don't go near the door. It's a lie. It's a lie. It's a lie. Don't go. I know it's hard. Wait upon the Lord. He will renew your strength. Don't go. Man or woman who's tempted with pornography, and every time you get around a computer, every time you look at your phone, you just think, well maybe just a little, just a little bit here. It's a lie. Don't don't go near it. Husband or wife, please listen. Marriage, it's just not what it used to be or it's not what you, not what you thought it was going to be. And the reason I'm upset right now is like I've just seen this stuff destroy so many of my friends' lives. I've seen it wreck my life. Like this is real. And then there's that person at the gym or at work. And they start asking you those personal questions that you wish your spouse would ask. And they just laugh at the stuff. Why don't my spouse laugh at that? Don't go near the door. Don't go near the door, he says. Sin is sweet at first. That's why why people have to be commanded to sin. Whoever says that sin's not fun, that's a lie. Sin is fun. That's why people do it all the time. But it's fleeting pleasure. Verse 5 4 says, It turns sour. It's bitter as wormwood. What seems so right in the heat of the moment turns sharp as a two edged sword. It cuts Deeply and it leaves lasting wounds. If we went around right now and we're real honest like we ought to be with one another. Many of the deepest wounds that we know in this room are because of this right here. My life before the Lord was not honoring to him and I still to this day am haunted. And there is great shame and regret and mourning. And others of us have had terrible sin committed against us in this realm. And it just, it messes with us in every level. And I just want you to know, don't walk through that alone. Like, we want to be a church that helps you. We all need help. I mean, John's not the Savior, but this is one of the reasons we wanted to bolster one of this, this area of our life in, in, in the body is to, do we want to be a church that doesn't just go through the motions and plays religious stuff and, like, just does stuff, on, like, just gets preaching right and we all give thumbs up? Like, this word's got to get in our lives and got to change us. Because the word of God heals broken hearts. Jesus does that, He'll do it for you, wherever you're at. That's what He does. But we've got to hear this warning. Sin is deceptive. And it is going to call you to detour from the path of life. And what's down there is nothing but devastation. In chapter 7, verse 22, that section where I was reading it ended and it said, He follows her as an ox to the slaughter. Her house goes down to the chambers of death. And then back in chapter 5, if you look at 5 again, look at verse 8. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and your body are consumed and you say, Oh, how I hated discipline. How I, how I, my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors I am in the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. This is a sobering warning. Consider the consequences, is what he's saying. See the end of your sin. See where it's trying to take you. He says you can lose everything by giving in to this. But giving in to pornography can wreck your life. Man, I know people, plenty of people who have lost jobs because of it, who've broken the hearts of their spouse and their children. And si- it wants you to think that it's just this private sin that affects nobody else. That is from hell. It's not true. First of all, God sees everything. And secondly, everything that we do, it affects others. Because it co- it makes your heart cold toward God and toward others. You're not going to be loving others when you're wrecked with guilt and shame you're not free to do that and also one of the aims of this particular sin of pornography i think it's it's aimed not at just ruining your quiet time not just making you feel guilty until you kind of you know you can get back to right with god its aim is to change the way you think about god's good gift so that if you have a spouse or if you get a spouse, you're going to have to be always fighting off this warp thing that you've been working about, what that gift really is, and Satan's lie is just turned upside down about what sexual relationship is really like. It's just a lie because what he wants to do is he's going after your marriage. He wants to destroy your marriage before it begins so that when you go in, you're already discontent. With anything anybody could ever do, it's his aim. He wants you to see the end of that. Giving into an adulterous relationship can cost you everything. And he wants. He says, "In the end, he says here, my son. In the end, picture sin's end. Think about." sitting down with your spouse and explaining to them what happened. Telling the kids, well, mommy's going to go away for a while. My daddy's not going to be around as much anymore. Telling the in-laws, taking down the family photos after a divorce. Selling the house you worked so hard for. The walls you painted together. Sin doesn't tell you about that when it's offering it to you. It's a liar. It lies to you. It hides the price tag. This is why Jesus had such strong words that we read earlier. Matthew 5, 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the members than your whole body go into hell. What Jesus is saying here is not mutilate yourself, but whatever you've got to do to kill sin, do it. People live for thousands of years without the internet. Thousands of them. Thousands of them. People lived for almost as long without iPhones. They really did, believe it or not. You don't don't have to have internet on your phone. Yes, I do. No, you don't. Yes, I do. No, you don't. Well, I need a different, well, how am I going to do my job? Get a different job. I'm not kidding. Jesus says, cut it off. This is killing some of us. It is destroying people's lives and souls. We're a lot more worldly than we think we are. The most important thing in life is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. That is what orients every decision. Um, Jesus is, he's clear there. And if you look at 522, 523, at the end of it, it says, He dies for lack of discipline. How are you disciplining yourself for the purpose of godliness to fight against this particular temptation? If you can't right now list out the ways that you're practically disciplining your life, then you are not, and you are setting yourself up for a fall. How how are you guarding? Not just by yourself, but in the context of community. Who knows your deepest struggles? Who who do you call on? Who's in your life asking you hard questions and that you're, you're willing to speak to about these things? We all need this. Now, now, what if you've already gone to the house? What if you've already, what if you're stuck in the house right now, this morning, and you're like, I'm in that house of, of temptation. I'm in it right now, and the house is burning down. What do I do? Well, if you're breathing, that means that God's giving you mercy. Every breath you suck in is a gift of mercy from God. So hear this, if you're not a Christian this morning, we are really thankful that you're here. We actually think there's no better place in the world for you to be than a place where you're going to hear the good news about Jesus. But what you've got to know this morning is that sexual sin is just one of the many ways that we have rebelled against our maker. And because our God is a good God, he will not just wink at sin, and he won't just say, "Oh, well, let's see how I'm feeling on that day of judgment." No. John chapter 3 says you're condemned already if you've not believed in the Son of God. There's no wait and see condemned already we saw earlier that it's, it's because of even starts with just the affections of the heart and then everything that flows out of that so the bad news is if you're outside of Christ and have not had your sins forgiven right now you are under the condemnation of the judgment of God but the good news is that this is a moment of mercy this is a moment of mercy And I want you to hear that there is good news that God, He loves to save sinners. He loves saving sinners. God so loved the world that He sent His only Son that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. That's amazing. God sent a Savior, Jesus, to die on the cross and then rise from the dead. And anybody who will look to Him who is pierced in their place and then rose to be the redeemer of their souls, he will forgive you. Turn unto him and believe. Today is the day of salvation. Run from the house and run unto Christ. Now, if you are a Christian and you're like, I know that, I believe that, but I'm just getting lit up. What do I do when I sin if I'm a Christian? Well, I'm preaching this sermon to help you to quit it by the grace of God. And hear this from 1 John 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's the aim. But if anyone does sin, and everybody says that's me, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Did you hear that, Christian? The good news for the Christian is that the righteous one is Jesus. Jesus Christ the righteous. The one who intercedes for you right now. So the gospel is not just for people who don't know Jesus and need to have their sins forgiven, though it is. It's also good news for us who have strayed and are wounded. Come unto Christ and plead for mercy. and He will give it. And as that happens, then we begin to walk with him and we see things differently. Which brings us to our second and shorter point. God's provision brings delight. God's provision brings delight. So sexual perversion brings destruction, but God's provision brings delight. God gives an antidote to sexual sin. The antidote is to indulge in sexual intimacy with your spouse. So he uses this illustration of of water here, talking about springs and cisterns. And the reason is because in in ancient Palestine, water was an invaluable commodity. I mean, it is dry, okay? So when you find a spring of water, that is an invaluable treasure. So what you do is you build a cistern. You dig out and you keep that water so that you can drink of it. You're not going to just let the water just, just go out into the street and forget about it because it's too valuable. Well... That's the illustration he uses here for relationship between a husband and a wife. Look at 5.15. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Oh, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. So just as a spring of water is precious and an invaluable possession that you won't let just run down the street, so it is with... Your sexuality. It's not something that's just supposed to be wasted, sharing with people who you aren't married to. He says, instead, take those desires under control and channel it with your spouse. Look again in chapter 5, verse 18. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely dear, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. That's in the Bible. Like, that's really in the Bible. I mean, God is using vivid imagery right here to communicate how good this gift is that he's given to a husband and a wife. That he expects husbands and wives to enjoy each other in this way. Filled with delight. Intoxicated always. Indulge with each other. And it's interesting that let your fountain be blessed, it's a passive. He's saying, let this happen to you. God desires this for you. For those of you who are married, God desires this. He wants to bless this area of your life. It's right there. It's a promise. It's not empty talk. And the reason that God desires to bless sexual intimacy in marriage is because what it does is it it deepens the bond of marriage, which is designed as a picture of something. If you remember Ephesians chapter 5, God says the actual purpose of marriage is to be a living illustration of the way that Jesus and the church love each other. So what God loves is healthy marriages, they reflect the trust and the faithfulness and the devotion and the, the intimacy of the kind of love that God has for his people. That he draws them near and makes them his own. He says, that's why I want it blessed. It's because of how weighty the picture is here. And that's why he says, verse 20, Why should be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Now, right here is where you have to pause and you have to realize, and some of you are well aware of this, if you're not a Christian, you're here this morning, and you're like, that's crazy talk. Like, that's just kind of crazy talk. The idea that you're going to dedicate yourself to one person exclusively for your whole life, that's crazy to the world. That's actually terrible counsel, according to the world. The world's counsel says what you've got to do is you got to, you're going to buy a car, you're going to what? Take it for a test drive. I can't tell you how many times i had people say that to me. Yep, if you're going to buy a car, you should take it for a test drive. But that's not how sex works. God's designed it very differently. The world says it's madness. I have a friend who um, was meeting with a couple guys who were struggling um, with with some some internet um, yeah, with temptation on the internet and all the, that kind of stuff, and um, they were having a real candid conversation, and they said to him, "We just." I don't understand how you, a married man, can have sex with the same woman for the rest of your life. And uh, he, he, he threw him a little bit of a, a curveball, and he said to them, who said I have sex with the same woman? And they all kind of looked at him. So you can imagine, that's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the point in the Bible study where everybody leans in and says, what do you mean? And he says, he says, she is always growing and changing. As a woman, and I'm always growing and changing as a man. You see, the blessedness of a marriage for the long haul is all sorts of seasons that y'all get to spend together, in which you have intimacy in the honeymoon highs and during the dark day lows. You make love when you, you buy a new house. And when you bury your parents, when you're hoping for children and you have them, and when you're hoping for them and you can't, every month you weep again together. You make love in sickness and in health for richer or for poorer, for better or for worse, until death do you part and there's a depth of intimacy in that that the world does not know there's a depth there there's a treasure there when the world thinks of pleasure it thinks of these little little hot flashes here and there you just get this get that and just move on to the next thing psalm 16:11 at your right hand are pleasures forevermore satan wants us to think that the pleasures are this these flashes of passion and settle for cotton candy. But God says, don't be intoxicated with cheap thrills, but be intoxicated with your spouse because in your spouse, I offer you a wine that only gets better with age. Persevere in my good gift through the hard days and taste and see that the Lord is good because God gives good gifts. Now for some of you who are married And sex is either very uncomfortable Or a source of emotional pain Please know that I prayed for you in my preparation For this And I want to say that if you haven't shared this struggle And this is difficult in your marriage I want to encourage you please Let people walk with you through this You are not alone In this area Husbands Husbands God commands us to pursue our wives, to lead them in delighting in God's gift of sexual intimacy. It means more than just sexual intimacy, though. Talk to her. Hold her hand. Grow with her. Listen to her. Hold her if she wants you to hold her. Don't if she doesn't. Serve her. All right? Whatever. Talk about it later. Wives, God commands you to be an enjoyment to your husband. It's a command. And God is not a brute God. He's a good God. Delight in God's gift of sexual intimacy. Make time for each other. It is one of the weirdest things in counseling. So when people are not married, I have to counsel them. Keep your hands off of each other. And then when they get married, put your hands on each other. Like, I don't know what happens. It's that forbidden fruit thing or something. But like, it is weird. Please, war against that. Sexual intimacy is a delight, but it is also a discipline. It's a discipline. Some of y'all work so hard, and you come home, and you're like, I'm passing out. For like weeks and months on end. No. Draw near together. Talk about it. Ask how things are going in that area. What ways can I serve you better? Listen, love, grow. I did a whole sermon, First Corinthians chapter seven, verses one through five. Um, the title is All My Lovin', sorry about that, but it's 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 about sexual intimacy in marriage. So I encourage you to to listen to it together and to talk about it. Okay. And again, if this is an area of struggle for you, there is no shame. And talking and walking with others. So for the married, the application here I think is very clear. Remain pure by delighting in God's good gift of sexual intimacy with your spouse. For the unmarried, the application may seem a little bit less direct. But the response to this text text is the same whether you're married or not. It's a response of faith whether we're going to trust God's good design or not. Protect your sexuality. It is a gift. Even if you never give it to another person on this earth, it is a treasure that God gives to you to guard. Either for a future spouse or for the honor and the delight of Christ who is the bridegroom of the church. And that that's how he concludes in verse 21. What he does is he concludes with lifting our eyes. 521, a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. He's turning the posture of the heart toward heaven. And this is really important. Because if we aren't careful, we could get the wrong impression from the last section that merely having a spouse or having a a spouse that fulfills you in every way that you could wish is going to fix the real problem. That is not going to keep you from falling into sexual sin. You can have the best spouse on the planet and the fact is that if our hearts are not satisfied in God we will wander away to find satisfaction elsewhere. Our spouse is a wonderful helper in many ways, but Spouses are sorry saviors. Amen? Amen. You're great, but amen. All right? Jesus alone is a sufficient Savior. The only thing that gives us power to overcome the desire for sin is a stronger affection for the Savior. The the, the aim is not affections merely in the bedroom, but, but toward the throne room where God is. Enjoy God's good gifts, but remember that God is the giver of good gifts, and he's got to be the aim of our affections, and that is what he, he does all the way through here, and you, you, you've, got to, you've got to ask, like, so, okay, I want these affections for God that's greater than this, this passion for everything else. How do I get that, right? You can't just up and be like, now I have great affections for God. It's, it's something God gives to you. But plead for it with him. Fast for it. Get others to to pray and to fast and to plead with you. And tether your heart to God's word. That's what he does all the way through here. Look again at verse 7. It says, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 7, verse 1. My son, keep my words. Treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep the teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart to keep you from the forbidden woman. Warm your affections with the word of God. This is how you fight sin. Is you love God more than sin. How do you do that? Not just by reading your Bible, but by loving the words that are in it, that point you to the word. So it is better for you to read three words and meditate deeply and have your heart warmed toward Christ than to read the whole Bible 50 times and feel nothing. So, those of you who are at this point in the, what month is this? Yeah, you're at, some of you in your Bible reading plan are just crushing it, right? So, you're in 1 Chronicles right now and you're like, I am all the way, I'm going to make it through the Bible in a year, but your heart has not been warmed. It's at least stupid, if not sinful, to, to not stop and slow down, if that's what it takes, to meditate on truths inform your heart but warm your heart plead with God to do that because as our hearts are warmed toward Jesus and love him more the song of heaven of being with him grows louder and the sounds of the sirens fade and someday soon we will see the one who has held us fast until that day come soon Lord Jesus Father in heaven, we come before you, and we thank you that our hope is not tied to our own resolve or our own abilities, but it is tethered to Christ who has gone into the veil as the anchor of our souls, the one who now holds us fast. And Father, we pray that you would make us a people who look to him in faith and cling to him and trust Him. Father, we pray that this morning, that wherever we are, that God, You would help us to step into the light. If we are hiding in darkness, help us to step into the light today, to send an email or a phone call or a text or something to reach out for help, and God, might You meet us there even now through Your Word. Lord, work, please. Might this church be a church that's known for its love for God and its holiness. Please, a holiness that resounds to joy. We thank you. We prayed in the name of Christ. Amen. Our final song is He Will Hold Me Fast, a boast that God is the one who brings us home. Let's stand and sing together He Will Hold Me Fast.